Well, you remember that time when Tim Tebow wore only one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the college sport, and on this particular evening, he was playing the national championship game. And as an outspoken Christian, he would oftentimes wear eye black, and he would write Bible verses on it. But this particular evening, in the national championship game, with tons of people watching, he chose John 3.16. And what's interesting is that that evening, 94 million people Googled John 3.16 to see what that meant. Isn't that interesting? Later, when Tim Tebow was asked about it, he said these words. Honestly, my first thought was, how do 94 million people not know John 3.16? As I mentioned in my prayer, many of us have grown up knowing this verse. In our family, this was the very first verse that we taught our kids to memorize. It's been a source of comfort. It's become very familiar. And for many of us, having opportunity to look at it again is just super sweet. For others, it's possible that this verse is really brand new. You may have seen people with signs that have it or a quarterback having it on his face. But what do these words mean? And what do they hold for us? We're going to call our study today, Jesus is the reason for the season, and so is the world. Because in these words, we find the reason why Jesus came. It's because God so loved the world. And so as we unpack these words of Jesus, let's give fresh attention to them. Even if you've grown up with these words memorized and close to your heart, let's look at them again as if for the very first time. Now what's interesting is the context of these words of Jesus occurred when one of the religious leaders of his day, a man named Nicodemus, came to Jesus in the middle of the night, and he gave a compliment to Jesus. And Jesus answered that compliment by saying, Truly I say to you, unless a person is born again, he can never see the kingdom of God. And what ensued from those words of Jesus was a conversation as Nicodemus tried to figure out what this meant to be born again. And in the conversation, Jesus said these words, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So as this lost soul is speaking to Jesus, what's first and foremost on Jesus' mind is eternal life that this man so desperately needs. And it's in that context that Jesus says what are perhaps his most famous words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What amazing words from Jesus. Augustine says something to the effect that the teaching of Jesus is deep enough for a whale to swim in and shallow enough for a child to wade in. Isn't that beautiful? These words that Jesus speaks here contain so much depth that they can never be plumbed, but they are so simple to understand that even a child can grasp what's being said. So let's reflect exactly on what Jesus is saying here. He begins by saying, for God. You see, Jesus saw clearly what so many people struggle today to see, and that is the existence of God for Jesus was a self-evident truth. It was a no-brainer for him that God existed. He came from God. He, in a very, very, very mysterious way, is God coming to us. And he begins with these words, for God. If there was no for God, there would be no Christmas. If there was no for God, there would be no salvation. If there was no for God, there would be no hope for this world. But Jesus said, for God so loved Not only does this creator exist, but this creator exists with a love for this world. 
In fact, John, in writing another letter, tells us these words, God is love. We hear Jesus speak these words about God's love in his gospel, um, the gospel that John wrote, but now we have this other letter, this New Testament document, where he says God is love. (laughs) One of the most truest things you can say about God is that God himself is love. And Jesus said, for God so loved the world. What does he mean by that? When you and I think of the world, we probably think of the globe that we are stationed on. And for the people in the ancient world, they didn't really have that mind of the globe. We have this kind of space-eye view of what our world looks like. But for them, the world was simply whatever they opened their eyes and saw. Creation around them, the people in that creation. That word cosmos itself can mean universe. In fact, we use that word cosmos in the English language to mean just that. But it can mean the world or the inhabitants of this world. And given the context that Jesus is using here, I think it's right to see fallen inhabitants of this world, people like Nicodemus, people like you and me, who desperately need what Jesus is offering. Now, I want to make just this one note. In the ancient world, apart from the Hebrew people, nobody thought of God or the gods as loving If you were to meet a typical Roman or Greek in the time of Jesus and told them God is loving, they would laugh at you. (laughs) The gods aren't loving. The gods can't be bothered with humans. In fact, we try to do things that get their attention, but the gods are really filled with vice, just like human beings are. If that was the problem in the Old Testament times, or I should say the New Testament times, the time when Jesus lived in this ancient world, We almost have the exact opposite problem today. If anyone thinks that God exists, it's not hard for them to believe that God is love. In fact, someone says, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he? I'm a very lovable person. (laughs) right?" In our time, it's it's no big deal for a lot of people to believe that God, if he exists, is a God of love and and would love them. Because after all, their mom loves them, right? D.A. Carson, a scholar, has uh, an interesting book with this title, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. What an interesting title. What could be so difficult about that? (laughs) But he writes in this book, if people believe in God at all today, the majority, the overwhelming majority, hold that this God, however he, she, it may be understood, is a loving being. But that is what makes the task of the Christian witness so daunting. (laughs) How do we get our heads around this God who would love and move toward humanity when we're so tempted to to believe that love is meant just for people like us, for our tribe, for our people, people that we like and vote like us, look like us. The Bible tells us in these words of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You want to know how God loves. It is seen most eminently in the fact that he has given us his son. In fact, John, the apostle in that letter I was just referencing, said this, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to make atonement for our sins. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son into the world to be the savior of the world. (laughs) He has sent his son to be the savior of the world. What a beautiful title for Jesus to have the Savior of the world. We're so used to hearing that, aren't we? I wonder if it it actually astounds us. In that time of Jesus, if you were to ask the average Roman who was the Savior of the world, they would have said Caesar is. 
Caesar is the son of God, and he is the savior of the world. He's the one who fights our battles. He's the one who seeks our peace. But here we're told that Jesus himself is the savior, the true savior of the world, who lives among other parodies of saviors. D.A. Carson once again put it very eloquently. He said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. That's what Jesus is seeking to communicate to Nicodemus and to us as we get to listen in on this conversation. Jesus goes on and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him. The message of Jesus is that salvation is found in him. And whoever believes in him can receive this salvation. There's some interesting examples in the scriptures of people who believed in Jesus. There's this one time when Jesus was traveling with his friends and they came to this place where a man had been born blind. And his disciples were asking the question, why was he born blind? Was, was it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus basically said, you're asking the wrong question. This has happened to him that the glory of God might be seen in him. And then Jesus healed this man, which caused a big furor because all the religious leaders were wondering how this happened. Who, who healed this man? They questioned him and put him on the defensive. And if you haven't ever read that, you should check it out in John chapter 10 because it's quite humorous. He's basically saying, you guys are the teachers of Israel. How do you guys not know who this is? He knew that he had been healed, but he didn't know exactly who it was that healed him. And they ended up casting him out. And then the Gospel of John tells us these words. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believed. I, be, I believe. And he worshiped him. Here's this example of this man who had been given the incredible gift of seeing. And when Jesus comes to him and says, I'm the one who did this. I am the son of man. Do you believe in him? And Jesus reveals himself to him. This man simply believes and then bows down to worship him. There's another example of when Jesus was crucified. Remember, he was crucified between what we say is two thieves on the cross. They were really more like um, insurrectionists or, or revolutionaries, depending on um, whose side you would listen to. Rome didn't really crucify people just because they stole a loaf of bread. They, they crucified people who were a threat or wanted to be a threat to the Roman Empire. And so Jesus himself was crucified between these two revolutionaries, these insurrectionists. And they both jeered at him. But at some point, one of them had a change of heart. Maybe it was in the way that he saw Jesus interacting with the people who were yelling at him and screaming at him. Maybe it was in his kind words that he said to his disciple John about taking care of his mother. Somewhere in there, he had a change of heart. And when the other revolutionary or insurrectionist began dogging on Jesus, this other man interrupted him and said that he's done nothing wrong. You and I deserve to be up here, but not this man. And then we're told, he said to Jesus, Jesus, 
remember me when you come into your kingdom. What beautiful words. Jesus, remember me. This man had nothing to offer to Jesus. His life was about to be over. He couldn't join a church. He couldn't promise that if Jesus remembered him that he would live a good life. He was toast. He was crucified. There was nothing left for him to do in this world. And he looked at this man beside him. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What an astounding statement. What, what a moment of clarity and belief to recognize this man who is crucified next to him actually is the ruler of a kingdom that's coming, the one they had all been waiting for, the kingdom of God. And he says to him simply, remember me. What powerful words of belief. Jesus, of course, responded to him by saying, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. I want to tell you a quick story that my friend Al Dayhoff told me. Al is a pastor, and he was in New York City, and he went to a, a blues bar to listen to some music, and he noticed sitting at the bar this burly man of about 50 years of age, and he had a look on his face that said, don't mess with me. Don't talk with me. We also had some tattoos on his arm, and my friend Al's written a book on tattoos, and he was really interested in what this man's story might be, so he, he comes up next to him and says, hey, there's some nice tattoos there. Can I ask you a couple questions? And the man didn't look up and didn't speak for a moment. And then after another moment, he said, what? My friend Al realized he might be stepping into some very dangerous territory here. Here was a man who didn't want to be messed with. And he was trying to find what words to say. And the man blurted out again, what? He said, I noticed you had some tattoos on your arm. I was wondering if you could tell me the story behind them. And the man showed him his arm, and on them he had some martial arts symbols. And he said, martial arts used to be my religion, but then I got too beat up and my body broke down. He showed him another tattoo of a rainbow. And he said, this symbolizes my survival of all those years of drug abuse. And he showed him another tattoo around his neck that was in honor of his mom. And then to my friends, Al surprise, in the middle of this bar with loud music playing in the background, this man stood up and took off his shirt. And he saw on this man's chest the tattoos of three crosses. And this man, whose name was Brutus, looked up at Al and said these words. My hope in life was to move from being the self-righteous jerk hanging on the left of Jesus to becoming the thief on his right. I was simply ask, I'm simply asking Jesus to remember me. Isn't that interesting? Here was a man in the middle of this bar in Manhattan. Loud blues music playing in the background. Broken and beat up. The cry of his soul being inked on the skin of his body. A cry for hope. A cry for mercy. A cry for eternal life. I'm simply asking for Jesus to remember me. What a beautiful statement of belief in Jesus. Jesus, would you remember me? Jesus said when we do, there's a glorious future in, in store for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Apart from Jesus, you and I perish. Apart from Jesus, you and I do not flourish. We may have some outwardly, worldly accumulations, but apart from Jesus, we perish. Given enough time, apart from Jesus, we will perish. But Jesus speaks these words, telling us of the love of God for this world, that whoever believes in Jesus, whoever embraces him as their Savior, they have eternal life. Someone says, honestly, I'm not sure I want, to, I want this eternal life. This life is exhausting enough. I don't know about you, but I've had some conversations with people about this lately. The thought of living forever doesn't seem like an attractive thing to me. Let me just say, if you're thinking of living forever in this life, I think I get what you're saying. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. You see, when Jesus speaks of eternal life, we need to hear him speaking about the coming kingdom of God. We need to hear him speaking about this glorious future where there is no more exhaustion from life. There is no more pain. There's no more hurting. There's no more crying. Everything will be the way it is. And you'll be constantly bathed in love. And everything will be just right. In fact, it just keeps on getting better and better and better. That's life in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is talking about. Life as it was meant to be. So let me ask you this question. What if what Jesus said is the gospel truth? What if what Jesus said is actually really the gospel truth, that there is a creator who loves this world, who loves this world so much that he gave us the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you simply believe in him, even if it's just simply a, Jesus, would you remember me? You have eternal life. Even if you don't believe this, wouldn't you want to believe this to be true? Jesus goes on the very next breath and says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We are already condemned. God didn't send Jesus into the world to add to our condemnation. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what God has done is sent Jesus to come into this world, not to condemn it and not to condemn us, but to offer us a Savior, this one who has the title, the Savior of the world. And we're called simply to, to believe in him, to embrace him, to say, Jesus, would you remember me? See, my friends, we were created to know and experience the deep, deep love of God. And that love is found in the Lord Jesus. Let me give us a couple points of application. The first one is simply this. Let's receive God's free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. I know many of you here have already done this. But I wonder if there's some of you who still need to do this. You're here, you come, but have you actually said to Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I have nothing to offer you. I have no, no ability to earn salvation. Would you simply remember me? I love this song that we sing at Christmas time. It's come now along, expected Jesus. We're going to end our service with this. 
But it has this line, come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness. Our redeemer and shepherd friend. Jesus has come to this earth to taste our sadness. He knows about your broken life. And his life was broken for people just like you. So believe in him. Jesus elsewhere says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. How good is that? (laughs) That people like you and me, believing in Jesus, are secure in him. No one, not even ourselves, can take us out of his hands. That's amazing. Here's the second point of application. Let's bask in these beams of God's love. If it is true that God is love, and since he's shedding his love on this world in the person of Jesus Christ, what would it be like for us to bask in those beams? Not just simply to give intellectual assent to it, but to actually dare to believe it. There's a wonderful poem by F.H. Lehman. It's very short, but sweet. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. There is more to God's love than you can ever dare to hope exhausts. I love going to the beach and just sitting there and looking out on a horizon that seems to never end. And to listen to the gentle lap of the waves, there's, there's probably nothing more relaxing for me than that. But we just see a little part of the world's ocean when we go to a beach, don't we? This poem talks about this whole world of oceans being like God's love. And we can never write enough about it. We can never, we can never exhaust it. We can never see it all. There's more to God's love than you and I can possibly ex- uh, uh, try to de- uh, plunge to the depths of, to, to explore. But we get all eternity to try. And that's a good thing. The Apostle Paul said, For this reason I kneel before the Father, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And he says, I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying for something that's impossible, that you would know how great God's love is, how wide and high and deep and long it is, but it's really unknowable, and that you would be filled with the fullness of God. One of my favorite quotes about the love of God is found in J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God. I've shared this with some of you before. He writes, There is tremendous relief in knowing his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. God knows everything about you, the scripture says, and he still desires to pour out his love on you. This inexhaustible fountain. And I love these words from Kyle Eilman. The one who knows me best loves me most. And so my friends, let me ask you this question. I imagine that if I were to ask 
you take out like a three by five card and just write the answer. Do you believe that God loves you? I imagine probably almost everyone in this room would say yes. But here's another question. Do you experience that love? Not as just a, a, a mental category, but at the very depth and core of your being. Do you really believe that the God who knows you best loves you most? My friends, if you struggle to believe that, let me point you back to Jesus. I know when I look at my own life and I see my own failures, I see every reason why God shouldn't love me. But when we look at Christ, we see that none of those reasons has deterred his determination to love us. Brennan Manning once wrote, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is your true self. Every other identity is an illusion. What is most real about you is God's love for you, not your accomplishments. What's most real about you is God's love for you, not your potential. What's most real about you is God's love for you, not your mistakes. So bask in those beams of God's love. So our first point of application was, let's receive God's free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Second was, let's bask in the beams of God's love. And here's the third one with a funny picture on the graphic. <laughs> let's remember that the best is yet to come. Jesus spoke these words in the story, the true story of the world. that began with God's good creation, setting it up with Adam and Eve being rulers for humanity the ones who are supposed to spread the kingdom of God over the face of this world, but the next step falls with them falling in with the evil one and being banished from God's presence. The story turns on Jesus entering this world, giving himself for us, but it doesn't end until the new heavens and new earth, what Jesus called the renewal of all things. See, the good news Jesus spoke of entails the overflow of the way things are and the establishment of of a new world order called the kingdom of God, where love and peace and justice reign precisely because King Jesus reigns. That's what he was interested in talking to Nicodemus about. That's what he wants to talk to you and I about. Eternal life, the kingdom of God. There's this quote by Martin Luther King Jr. who said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Martin Luther King Jr., as a pastor, knew what the scripture said. And he knows that this world bends toward justice because it bends toward Jesus. He knows that this world bends toward peace because it bends towards Jesus. When his kingdom comes, peace, justice, love will flourish, and everything else opposed to that will be vanished. I know you have a hard time believing that sometimes, and so do I. That's why my favorite Christmas hymn is this poem that is written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It's called Christmas Bells. My favorite version of it is a song that is put out by Casting Crowns. If you haven't heard this, uh, just Google it. It's an amazing version of it. But Wadsworth Longfellow wrote this song because he was questioning everything that he believed. You see, a couple years before he wrote these words, his second wife, of, I think it was 14 years, died, which plunged him into a dark depression. He had just gotten word that his son, who entered into the, the war between the states and the Civil War, um, apart from his permission as a father, underage, by the way, 
um, was injured. He just got news of that. And so he sat down on a Christmas morning, 1863, and wrote the words of this poem. And it says this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat, a peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in my despair, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song, a peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let me pause for just a moment and say, I get what he says, don't you? When you look at the war, this world and you see wars and rumors of wars, this notion of peace on earth seems like a pipe dream, doesn't it? When you look at the ways in which humanity just seems to invent new ways of hurting each other, is it possible that what Jesus said is true, or is it just a pipe dream? And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then he says, then rang the bells more loud and clear. God is not dead. I'm sorry, let me read that again. getting ahead of myself. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. As they sat there composing this poem, thinking about how hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, he hears those church bells ring more loudly, and it roots him back into the story of Jesus. And he knows that the wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. The coming kingdom of God is real, and it is coming. The prophets wrote about it. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their swords into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand over the serpent's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When Jesus spoke of eternal life, when he spoke of the coming kingdom of God, this is what he was speaking about. Creation set to rights. And he invites people like you and me into that kingdom. Can you say with the thief on the cross, Jesus, would you remember me? C.S. Lewis said, there are far better things ahead than anything we leave behind. So Mercy Hill Church, this Advent season, may you know and experience the deep love of God, which gave to us Jesus, the Savior of the world, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life.